What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pop Show. I hope everyone's having a great week so far. We got a lot to talk about today, so I want to get right into it. Number one, we're going to be talking about Steve Sarkeesian's recent extension at the University of Texas. Now, we all know that it was announced that he was getting an extension when Alabama came poaching around a bunch of different coaches after Nick Saban's retirement. But now the details are out. So I'm going to read you guys through the contract, including some of the ways that he was able to maximize the value by sheltering some of the money through his corporation. But also, I want to go through the athletic department at the University of Texas and explain to you guys why this is an absolute no-brainer, despite him being one of the highest-paid coaches in college football today. Number two, we're going to be talking about Major League Soccer. MLS opens their season this Wednesday night with a match between Lionel Messi and Inter-Miami versus Real Salt Lake. But I'm not going to get into the weeds of the actual game itself. Instead, I want to talk about the finances of the league and some of the things that they should and need to be doing to prepare for the upcoming surge in interest that they think they should see off the back of Copa America and the Men's FIFA World Cup in 2026. And number three, we're going to be talking sports betting. Some of the early numbers are in so far when it comes to this year's Super Bowl. The amount of money that these companies are making is more than ever before. And it's simply because of the way that you guys and everyone else are placing bets on their platform. So I'll run you guys through all of that too. But I think you guys are really going to enjoy this. So let's get right into it. All right, let's start at the University of Texas and Steve Sarkeesian. So it's no secret that when Nick Saban stepped down from the University of Alabama as their head football coach, there were a number of candidates in place. Everyone was thinking Mike Norvell at Florida State, he's done a tremendous job with that program and reviving them. Other people were thinking Steve Sarkeesian at the University of Texas. It's his third year there. He went 12-2 and this past year and made the college football playoff, completely reviving that program as well. Other people might have been thinking Dan Lanning at Oregon. He's done a tremendous job there. And the fourth name on that list was Kalen DeBoer. Now, we all know, obviously, that Kalen DeBoer was the final pick. He's now the head coach at the University of Alabama. But what you may not know is that there's one individual that was behind basically all of these chess moves that we've seen over the last few months. Hardcore college football fans know exactly who I'm talking about because it's Jimmy Sexton. Now, for those of you who don't know who Jimmy Sexton is, Jimmy Sexton is an agent. He's an agent at CAA. He's one of the most powerful agents in sports and certainly within college football. He represents coaches all over the country, but most importantly, he represents the majority of coaches in the Southeastern Conference, the SEC. I think he represented 11 out of 14 head coaches in the SEC last year. And what this allows him to do is he, it allows him to use all of the coaches in the conference and elsewhere as chess pieces on the board, right? So when Nick Saban steps down at the University of Alabama, they want to hire a new coach. He represented the majority, if not all of their top targets on their list. Again, we're talking Mike Norvell represented by Jimmy Sexton, Steve Sarkeesian, represented by Jimmy Sexton, Dan Lanning, represented by Jimmy Sexton, Kalen DeBoer, represented by Jimmy Sexton. You're starting to understand exactly what's happening here, right? So he knows he has all the leverage. And whether these guys want to go to Alabama or stay at their current school, they can use that leverage to get more resources for their football program or contract extensions, or most importantly, more money added to their deal. Now that's exactly what Jimmy Sexton did. He got Mike Norvell more money at Florida State, He obviously got Steve Sarkeesian, which we're going to get into, more money at the University of Texas. Same thing happened with Dan Lanning. And then once all those contracts were done, he took Kalen DeBoer, his fourth client, and placed him at the University of Alabama. Absolute chess work. And one of the reasons why he has become one of the most powerful agents in all of sports, and certainly the reason why a lot of college football coaches want to work with him, because they know if you're on his board, he can place you in certain places and get you raises that other agents may not be able to do. But now we have the details on Steve Sarkeesian's contract, and that's what I want to go through. So Steve Sarkeesian, for those of you that don't know, he started at the University of Texas three years ago. 
he came in. He was unproven to a degree, even though he had multiple stops in the NFL and college and all over the place, really. But he signed a six-year deal that was worth $34.2 million in total. That's about $5.5 million on his annual deal. Now, that's decent pay. It's relatively average for a school like the University of Texas, but it doesn't place him in the upper echelon of college football coaches. When it comes to paying college football, if you're making $10 million or above, you're in that top bracket. These are guys like Kirby Smart. Nick Saban was obviously there. Dabo Sweeney. That group of coaches are the ones. Lincoln Riley. Those are the coaches that are making $10 million plus. He was making about half of that at the University of Texas, which makes sense. I mean, we all know how buyouts work in college football. They don't want to give you some ridiculous contract that they have to buy out at the end of you know two, three, four years if you're not performing. So they give you this smaller deal. And if you perform, they'll give you a bigger deal. Now, who's to say that was going to happen if the Nick Saban thing doesn't happen? He obviously was performing as a head coach, but you never know. His first season, he went five and seven. He improved his second season. He went eight and five. And this past year, his third season of that initial six-year deal, he went 12 and two, losing in the Sugar Bowl. So this team has obviously gotten better over the last number of years. And now he gets his contract extension. So his pay is going to be going from $5.5 million annually to more than $10 million annually. So he essentially got a 100% raise. They doubled his salary. But also, he has a bunch of different things in this contract. For anyone that has ever reviewed college football coaching contracts before knows, there's some things in the details that are always usually interesting. Number one, he'll have private jet access to recruit different players. So he'll be able to fly all over the country like he normally does to recruit. But he'll also have private jet access for personal use, up to 20 hours annually of flight time on a private jet for him and his family for personal use. Now, these hours do not fly over. They do not go uh, roll over to the following year, but he'll have them on an annual basis, 20 hours per year. He also will get a country club membership. I believe it's probably to the country club in Austin, Austin Golf Club. And that's about $100,000 a year on top of that. Plus, there's usually a 10-year waiting list for this club as well in the Austin country. Club. So granted, that's worth a lot of money there by itself. He'll get two cars. He'll get tickets and suites at every game. He'll also get tickets to every non-football game. He'll get tickets to bowl games and everything else on top of that. He's taken care of. He doesn't have to worry about anything financially, but also from a resource perspective, Obviously, the University of Texas with NIL and everything else is going to do whatever they have to do to be able to make sure he is successful there. But one thing caught my eye in this. If you look at the contract, which has been made public, I initially saw it on a Twitter account called Inside Texas. I'm not sure if they're the ones that broke the contract, but that's where I initially saw it. One of the things that caught my eye is that 60% of the money that the University of Texas is paying Steve Sarkeesian is going to be flowing through Sarkeesian Enterprises. Now, this is a corporation that is owned by Steve Sarkeesian. You might say, why are they doing that? That seems a little bit weird. Just pay him. He's an employee of the school. But the reason they're doing it, in my guess, I don't know, but my guess would be that one, it allows him to deduct agent fees. There was a loophole uh, that recently got closed. I don't know if it's even a loophole, but there was a rule within the IRS code that allowed players and coaches to deduct agent fees, tax deductible, from their salaries or their payments uh, over you know decades. That got closed in 2018. And now the real way where you have to do it is you have to file it through a corporation or an LLC of some sort. It obviously also provides him with protection in case he would be sued or something else like that. But he'll save probably you know maybe a couple million dollars on fees and everything else that he runs through that business. Because it's not only his contract, it's appearance fees and everything else associated with that. By running it through that corporation, he's going to save a ton of money. And the interesting part about this is a lot of schools won't do that. A lot of schools say that you have to be paid directly as a W-2 employee, but the University of Texas obviously made an exception here, which is really big. The state also doesn't have state income tax, which means he's going to save even more money than he would have before. But one of the other things I want to talk about this is the amount of money that the University of Texas is making. 
Now, Texas has plenty of money. We all know this. But they actually set a record last year. They reported to the NCAA that they brought in $271 million in revenue, in operating revenue, for their athletic department in 2023. Now, the reason why this is so important is because that's the budget that the football team runs on. Everyone always talks about academics and the, the tuition is increasing. But at University of Texas, that money is separate, right? So they're not increasing the student tuition to be able to pay Steve Sarkeesian. That's not how this works. This comes out of the athletic budget. So they brought in $271 million last year, which was a $32 million increase from the prior year. And it was the most money ever recorded by a school since the NCAA started doing this, their reporting system, which makes every school report their finances in 2005. So if it hasn't happened since 2005, it's probably, in my opinion, safe guess to say that $271 million is the record for the NCAA from an operating revenue perspective. So it's fair to say Texas made more money last year on their athletics than any school has made in history before. Now, $183 million of that $271 million came via the football program. That's 68% of the income that the school made last year through their athletic department came from the football team. That's way more than all the other schools that were in the top five, Penn State, LSU, Tennessee, all of these schools, Terrell, Texas, by at least $70 million. So now Texas is saying, okay, you've brought us back to the upper echelon of college football. We're making more money than any other school. We made the college football playoff. We're now transitioning to the SEC where we're going to make even more money because the TV rights are higher. We're going to, get, going to be uh, drawing more fans. The viewership is going to be higher than it was previously in our conference. And we need to lock you in. And this $10 million might seem like a lot of money. He's obviously getting years added to his contract as well. And some people will say he might end up getting bought out because he only had one really good year. And maybe that's true. But today, we're talking about today. He is one of the most in-demand coaches in college football. He's making their program more money than they ever made before. And his $10 million contract represents, I think it's probably just, yeah, it's 5%, right? So if you took the $10 million and divided by the $183 million that the football team made alone last year, that's 5% of the football-specific budget is going to coach Steve Sarkeesian. That's an absolute no-brainer in my mind. And it's one of the very reasons why Texas felt so comfortable with extending him so early in his tenure as head coach, but also locking him down and making sure that Alabama can't come and swoop him up. Instead, Alabama lands with Kalen DeBoer instead. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. Winter can be a drag. Thankfully, we have sports to get us through the early part of the year. If you ask me, nothing goes together quite like food and sports, especially this time of year. I mean, we got football on, college and pro hoops, hockey. So let's just say... I may be plopped down on my couch until the temperature hits the 80s again. And the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card provides the perfect way to earn rewards. Whether you're watching your team with other super fans at a local eatery or in the comfort of your own living room. I know me personally, there's nothing better than ordering wings, sitting on my own couch, and watching sports. You can earn four times points when you dine out or have food delivered. I mean, those wings do sound pretty damn good. Plus, earn two times points at grocery stores. Maybe you want to cook the wings yourself. And if you're willing to brave the elements, even getting to the game can be rewarding, as you'll earn two times points at gas stations and EV charging stations. So go to usbank.com slash altitude go to learn more about how you can earn 20,000 bonus points worth $200 if you spend $1,000 in the first 90 days of opening your account. Score big with the US Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Car. Visit usbank.com slash altitude go to apply and live every day your way. Limited time offer. The creditor and issue of this card is U.S. Bank National Association. Pursue it to a license from Visa USA Incorporated. Some restrictions may apply. All right, the next thing I want to talk about today is Major League Soccer. 
So it's no secret that people have been talking about Major League Soccer for really decades now about how this was going to be the next big sport in North America and the U.S. specifically. And I don't necessarily think they're wrong. Soccer is the biggest sport worldwide. The World Cup had one and a half billion viewers last year, which compared to the Super Bowl is an entirely different stratosphere, right? The Super Bowl gets 123 million viewers this year compared to 1.5 billion for the World Cup final. Albeit that's only four years, a little bit different, but you guys get the point. Soccer is huge basically everywhere except America. And people have been betting on Major League Soccer to get much bigger over the coming years because, look, we're seeing MLS valuations are going up. The play is getting a little bit more competitive every year. But also a lot of the international competitions are coming to the United States. We have Copa America coming uh, this summer, and we have the Men's World Cup coming in 2026. The U.S. is going to be hosting the vast majority of those matches. And the, the semifinals, the quarterfinals, and the final are all going to be held in the U.S. specifically. So MLS is hoping that Combining those tournaments with the arrival of Lionel Messi and the growth of the game in general is going to be a rocket fuel for their league to catapult themselves, certainly ahead of the NHL, but even in the same stratosphere of Major League Baseball and other leagues like that, too. And we're seeing this a little bit already. If you just look at franchise valuations, LAFC became the first team to be worth a billion dollars. Inter-Miami doubled their revenue last year up to $120 million. They were doing around 50 to $60 million annually before Messi arrived. Last year, they were claiming to do $120 million in revenue. We also saw uh, on Messi's debut over 110,000 net new signups for their uh, season pass on Apple TV just the first day. And we'll talk a little bit about how that has expanded since. But all of these numbers are getting absolutely crazy. I mean, the new San Diego franchise paid, I think it was $500 million expansion fee to join the league last year. The league has a 10-year, $2.5 billion deal with Apple to place all of their content in the Apple TV atmosphere. So things are looking up. All of the investors I've talked to are really bullish on soccer in general, but specifically MLS. And we've seen it in the numbers. These teams typically trade at maybe a four to five to six revenue multiple, which essentially just means if your team is making $100 million in revenue each year, they're going to be valued at $400 million, $500 million, or $600 million. That's the average valuation on a revenue multiple basis. But when you look at a league that's supposed to be growing and has a bright future, that's obviously going to be a little bit higher. We see this with the NFL. Those teams typically trade at maybe a seven or eight times revenue multiple. We don't necessarily see this as much with the NHL, where those teams will stick to a four to five times revenue multiple because investors aren't excited about the future like they are with the NFL or soccer. Soccer teams are in another league of their own. These teams are trading at 10 to 12 times revenue multiples because of that. Now, that will come down over time. That will compress a little bit, and it will be a little bit of a shock to investors. But right now, that's not happening. I mean, these MLS teams are worth more than Premier League teams like West Ham, United, Everton, Newcastle, Aston Villa, and many others too. And you may say to me, Joe, how is that possible? These teams have way less fans. They should be making less revenue because they have less fans, and they're not even in one of the top 10 soccer leagues in the world. How are they more valuable than teams across the Premier League? And the easiest answer here is that the structure is very good from an investment perspective in the U.S. If you look at all the best sports leagues, I talk about this often, how the NFL has the best business model in all of sports. If you look at the NFL, they do all of their TV rights on a national level. So they don't have to deal with all, any of the RSNs, the regional sports networks that have become a mess over the last few years. But more specifically, they have a salary cap. So owners know exactly how much they're going to be spent from a projection standpoint every single year. It increases by a small percentage every single year based on the total revenue of the league and the teams. So it's very predictable, which is great. They have a draft that's done in reverse order. About half the teams make the playoffs, and there is immense parity across the entire league. 
That makes it an amazing business model, specifically with the NFL, because again, they're able to project the cash flows. There's no promotion relegation. So it's a closed end league. You know exactly how much money you're going to be making on a given year. And you can predict where valuations are going to go because of that. Because if revenue continues to grow and multiples stay constant or even relatively just sink a little bit, you know exactly what your team's going to be worth in the next five years, in the next 10 years, and potentially in the next 50 years, albeit we don't know what's going to happen with TV and other things like that. But you guys get the point. MLS is that same structure. The Premier League doesn't have that. La Liga doesn't have that. Serie A doesn't have that. Bundesliga doesn't have that. They all have promotion relegation, and they don't benefit from those same underlying dynamics that MLS does. Now, I caveat all of this with saying that MLS still has a hell of a lot of work to do. MLS, I think they're ranked the 16th best league in the in the world right now. They're never going to be a top five, in my opinion. You're just not going to do it because of the culture and the dynamic of a lot of those different leagues. Now, if you're able to pay players what Saudi's paying different players in different leagues and stuff like that, maybe. But we're so far away from that happening that it feels egregious to say. So let's just say that the top five are going to stay in the same order that they are. We're talking about the leagues, Premier League, La Liga, Serie A, Bundesliga, League One. Those leagues are going to stay the same. In my mind, though, there's no reason why MLS can't be a top 10 league. They could be 10. Why can't they be 10? They could be 10. But they need to do several things to get there. And I don't think that Lionel Messi by himself is going to be able to do this. I bought MLS season pass when Messi came last year. I watched more MLS games last year than I probably have in the previous five years combined. And what I've noticed over the last year, but also before that, I've attended a number of games too in different cities across the country. And what I've noticed is that MLS has done a great job attracting local fans to a lot of these teams. If you go to a game in Nashville, if you go to an LAFC game, if you go to games, different games across different teams, Charlotte FC, these teams have great fan bases, even relatively new teams like a Charlotte FC. They've done a really good job via a grassroots perspective. But what I'll say is that Lionel Messi, he brings the eyeballs that they've been missing from in a media perspective, a distribution perspective to the sport. The only problem with that is if he doesn't perform. Right, And we saw this a little bit at the end of last year. He came in so freaking hot. I don't know how many games they wanted to start, but I think it was like eight or nine or 10 games in a row to start where they didn't lose. He lit the world on fire. He was scoring goals every single night, if not scoring, assisting on goals. They were playing his games in Times Square. It was amazing. I was loving it. Everyone else was loving it. But then he dealt with some injuries. The team ended up missing the playoffs. And you really never heard about Inter-Miami for the last like two months of the season. Now, hopefully that changes again this year. He's healthy. They brought over uh, some more of his former teammates to play on the team as well this year. And they should be good. I don't think they're going to win all of their games. I don't even necessarily think they're going to win the championship. There's a lot of parity across Major League Soccer that doesn't get talked about. And just because these players used to play on Barcelona doesn't mean they're going to win the championship. I don't think that's going to happen. But what I do think needs to happen is that MLS needs to make several changes where they're not just banking on Lionel Messi. Because if you think about Lionel Messi, Inter-Miami, that's kind of like their own thing. He's on their team. Their valuation has skyrocketed. Uh, it's gone up 66% over the last year. It was previously valued at $600 million. Now it's valued at a billion dollars as a football club. So Lionel Messi alone to this team was worth, give or take, $400 million in year one. Now, a lot of people have asked me, they say, Joe, what happens when he leaves? What if he leaves in a year or two years? Is that valuation just going to come down? Obviously, they're not going to be selling as many jerseys and their revenue is going to come down. So if the multiple stays the same, you would expect that number to decline. But here's what I think Inter-Miami is doing. Not think, I know this is what Inter-Miami is doing. When Lionel Messi got to the team, they thought to themselves, how can we maximize revenue as much as we can over the coming years to make sure that we take advantage of this how we can? The same thing happened with the LA Galaxy when David Beckham got there, and now he's obviously one of the lead people at Inter-Miami, so he knows how this works. 
And what they're doing is really smart. Actually, even before Lionel Messi got there, they were making all of their advertisers, all of their sponsors sign deals that included escalators in their agreements if they were to sign Lionel Messi or Ronaldo or someone like that who had won multiple balloon dealers. Now, that was really smart. And you have to imagine they're including similar language where these contracts are locked in for the next decade. If you want to sign a sponsorship agreement with them today, you have to agree for the next decade whether Messi's there or not. So I think that's really smart. I think that they'll probably be able to maintain that valuation to some degree because their revenue should continue to increase year over year over year. And it will eventually catch up to a point where they can remain relatively stable. Maybe they bring in other players that are, albeit not at the same level of Messi, but former teammates and players like that, that continue to churn or, or keep the same level, at least, of season tickets every single year. But that's Inter-Miami. MLS is almost just like different beasts, and they have a few different things that I think they can do. Number one, cut it out with all these, these huge, massive stadiums. We need soccer-specific stadiums. No one likes going to a game in Chicago where you're playing in the Bears venue and no one's there. It looks absolutely ridiculous. We need soccer-specific stadiums. They need to be packed out every single night. They also need to play on the same breaks as all the other international leagues. It feels so wonky to me and many other people too. When you watch Major League Soccer and all the international players on a break, but we're playing games with Major League Soccer and some of the players in Major League Soccer have to go away for their national team obligations. They're half-ass rosters and they're not good as uh, they're not nearly as good of competition as they should be. So let's start following the international schedule. That's number two. But number three, I think we need to change the roster rules. And this is something that I've been hammering home. Anyone that has been listening to this show over the last couple of years knows that the roster rules in MLS are more confusing than any other league in the United States. If you look at all of the biggest leagues in the U.S., it's fairly obvious what happens. It's there's a salary cap. You have to spend less than that salary cap. And if you spend a little bit more, you pay a luxury tax, which goes to the other teams. This is commonplace, especially across the NBA and MLB. NFL has a little bit more of a hard cap, but it's fairly obvious. You have a certain budget you can spend. You can spend up to that money. And if you go over, you pay a little bit more to all the other teams as a penalty. MLS, on the other hand, has this ridiculous model. I mean, if I just ran you guys through some of the terms, let's just think through them real quick. We have the super draft, designated players, homegrown players, general allocation money, discretionary targeted allocation money. If you don't follow MLS, you have no idea what any of that means. Now, of course, this is always going to be the case from league to league to league with a couple different things that are specific to that league and an individual who doesn't follow the league won't know. But as someone who's been trying to get into MLS over the last few years, it took me so long to learn what all these different things mean and how they interact with each other. And you may say, why do they have that? Well, the real reason why they have it isn't for today. That's the real problem. They implemented a lot of these things to protect the owners of the past. Soccer at a professional level had already failed in North America, and they were trying to reboot MLS and make it financially stable for the future. And they didn't want all these gung-ho owners to come in and blow a bunch of money by trying to sign these talents and then go bankrupt a year or two later. So they implemented very strict salary cap procedures to stop owners from doing this. They literally had to make a rule to allow David Beckham to come here when he came here, I think 2007 or whatever it was. And what they haven't done, though, is change those rules today. There are so many more financially stable owners across MLS that are trying to spend more money to try to make their teams better and bring international players to the U.S. to attract more fans and increase viewership. And they're literally not able to do it because of the fact that MLS has so many of these outdated salary cap rules. So fix those three things that I just mentioned right here from stadium-specific soccer venues to uh, the international time requirements and when you're going to be taking off and also the roster rules. And I think you're going to be off to a better start. But ultimately, what's going to have to happen 
is this is going to have to continue to build out from a grassroots level. The sport is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. But these next two years, these next three years are so important for the sport. You do not want to waste the men's FIFA World Cup final coming here in 2026 and look back and say, hey, we should have done more. We should have changed the roster rules. We should have increased uh, international time off so fans don't have to watch games where the best players aren't playing. You're going to look back on this and do a bunch of, oh, I should have done that. I should have done that. I should have done that. Don't do it. Don't do it. MLS has a chance to become one of the major sports leagues in the United States, and there's a very obvious path for them to make it happen. Now we just need to see if they can follow through on that path. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You've probably noticed over the last few years that many more of your family and friends are starting to take therapy more seriously. And it's not just you. I've personally noticed this across my family and friends too. And I think the major reason for this is that they've now noticed that therapy isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is proven to help with other things like communication skills, improving mood, increasing self-awareness, and making your relationships stronger. So if you're thinking about starting therapy today, there's no better place than BetterHelp. BetterHelp is entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you do is you go on their website, you fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. They've helped out millions of people with therapy help, and they have 35,000 licensed therapists ready to help you. So visit betterhelp.com slash pomp to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash pomp. All right, the last thing I want to talk about today is sports betting numbers from this year's Super Bowl. Now, it's no secret that sports betting has become immensely popular in the United States over the last five years. PASPA was the law that was repealed by the U.S. Supreme Court in 2018. And essentially what that did was it paved the way for individual states to legalize online sports betting by themselves. About half of the states in the country have uh, legalized sports betting so far. So, you know, call it 50% of the country has access to sports betting. But what we've seen over the last few years is that the, the dynamics and the type of bets that people are placing are changing. And this is directly related to the way that these companies, the FanDuel's, the DraftKings, the BetMGM's of the world, are marketing their products. So I'll give you guys a few examples. There's something in sports betting called hold, which is essentially just the amount of money, after all the bets are paid out, that the sports book itself gets to keep. So let's use a good example here. An average straight bet, where call it an over-under or a, a favor or an underdog betting on, if you just bet one bet, the average hold on that bet might be around 5%. So if a sports book takes in $100 in bets, they're paying out 95 of that back in the form of winnings, and they're keeping $5 of that 100 for themselves, 5% of hold, right? But what we've seen over the last few years is that they've started to aggressively push parlays, and specifically same-game parlays. FanDuel was obviously the main driver behind that with their relationship with Pat McAfee and many other creators as well. But now this has become so popular that I think it's really worth talking about because I think people need to understand exactly what these sports books are doing. They're taking a product where they would normally see a 5% hold with straight bets. And they're now promoting product like a parlay or a same game parlay where their, their hold percentage will increase all the way from 5% to 25%, right? So you can see why it'd be advantageous for them to start pushing these products. And I don't think there was ever a better example than the Super Bowl. Now, I don't know exactly how many of these were straight bets versus parlay bets. The data doesn't get that good. But Todd Furham posted this tweet from Sports Handle the other day and it caught my eye. It was essentially just showing all the operators in New York during the Super Bowl, showing how much handle they have and how much revenue they created. Now, there, there were some outliers here. I mean, BetMGM got absolutely crushed. They took in $10.8 million of bet, and they only held negative $4.8 million, which was an absolute bloodbath. I don't know what happened there. Maybe they were giving out some promotional credits or stuff like that. 
But the more important part to, in this to me was that if you look at DraftKings, they held 17% during the Super Bowl in New York. They took in $52 million in bets and profited, had a hold of $8.8 million. That's obviously much, 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 much higher than their typical average of 5% on straight bets. But it's even more ridiculous in the context of the game that we saw. If you think about the game, the public was so heavy on the Chiefs. All of the numbers coming out beforehand were how many people were betting on the Chiefs, the over, Travis Kelsey, Patrick Mahomes, all their prop bets and everything else like that. So when you see everyone heavy on the Chiefs like that, when that team wins, it usually is a murder for the sports books because they were having to fade the other side of that. But we also saw the game go into overtime, which means the overs and everything else associated with the player prop totals, which are typically bet on the overs, hit as well, or some of them hit, but you have a greater chance of them hitting going into overtime. So not only is 17% hold for DraftKings and 7% hold for FanDuel, kind of ridiculous in the grand scheme of a big game like this, but it's even more ridiculous when you think about the type of game that we had with the public being all over the Chiefs and this game going into overtime. Now, the reason I want to tell you guys about this is because you're already seeing the shift. I think we're going to be seeing it more of how these companies are marketing their products. If you go on the FanDuel website or the DraftKings website or something like that today, you'll see most of what they're promoting is these parlays or these same game parlays. Now, you'll also see that a lot of their social media accounts and a lot of the creators in this space or even the, the, the bigger media accounts, Bleacher Report Betting and, and Sports Illustrated Betting and ESPN Bet and other ones like that, a lot of the promotion that you're seeing are around these parlays because they're such long shots, right? It's like 10 bucks to win a thousand bucks or 20 bucks to win a $500,000. There was one earlier this year from DraftKings where a guy had an anytime TD. He had like 15 players in there and he won half a million dollars. That's the stuff they're going to continue to promote because these are the bets they want you to take, right? They don't want you to take the straight bets. They want you to take these parlays. And if they can get you to take same game parlays, that's exactly what they want you to do. Now, I can give you guys even more evidence of this because uh, in Illinois, they require a little bit more disclosure than some of the other states. And I saw this stat from FanDuel the other day. They talked about FanDuel's disclosures in there when it comes to straight bets versus uh, parlays. And FanDuel says that on their straight bets, they typically hold 5.1%. So that's where I'm getting these numbers from. But on their parlays, they typically hold an average of 23.8%. So when the financial incentives are aligned for these sports books to put you towards parlays and same game parlays, what do you think they're going to market to you? We've also heard it directly from the founders themselves. Jason Robbins at DraftKings specifically said, and I quote, we've seen no decline in demand as we've increased hold rate. The important thing is we're not increasing it by making the odds any worse for customers. It's just by pushing more parlay mix and things like that. Now, that's not to say parlay shouldn't exist. People like parlays. There's a reason why people bet them. And it's mostly because you can take a small amount of money and turn it into potentially a big amount of money by lengthening your odds by including multiple things on one bet. That's a good thing. People should have choices. But my idea of sports betting has changed a little bit over the years. When sports betting initially got legalized, it's not that I thought it was a good idea, but sports betting was always kind of seen as this like low cost form of entertainment, right? If you bet $100 on a Sunday afternoon football game. That $100 is being bet on three hours of your time. And maybe it's even less than that. Maybe it's $10 or $20 or something like that, right? So it's a relatively low cost form of entertainment. But what we've seen now is not only can people not handle it, but more importantly, the mix of different bets they're trying to get you to do has shortened that time span. So you can bet on multiple games at the same time, but you're also able to bet on things in game. And eventually we're going to get a point where the latency between the actual TV time and the betting apps is so low and really only just a matter of seconds, where in my mind, you're going to be able to bet on, is the next play a runner a pass, right? And that's where I think we get into a little bit of a dangerous area. And it's part of the reason why countries across Europe, and specifically in London and other places like that, have pulled back a little bit on these sports gambling partnerships. But I do think that 
you know, knowledge is power. And it's one of those things where if you can pay attention to it and know that it's happening in the US today, maybe you won't fall victim to it as much. And it's one of those things where you'll see creators talking about it. You'll see influencers talking about it. You'll certainly see the companies talking about it. And everyone seems to have an idea about why this is so good for the market. But ultimately, it's good for the market because it's good for the companies. It's good for their shareholders. They're making more money. And that's what their shareholders want out of this. So don't be surprised when all the big companies, DraftKings, FanDuel, BetMGM, ESPN Bet, and so forth, continue to push this mix of parlays and same game parlays. And eventually, their real plan is probably to push you to uh, iGaming of some sort where they'll make even more money on a whole percentage than they would in traditional sports betting. So that's just something to keep an eye out for. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to bet. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't bet. It's just something that you should be aware of. So you know, my odds are changing. I need to think about this in a more analytical perspective and not be so worried and headline grabbing of, okay, I just bet $10. Maybe I could win $500,000. The shot of that happening is so absolutely ridiculous. Sportsbooks want you to be doing this. So pay attention to it. This may not change over time. Maybe we have some regulation, but my guess is that it's only going to get more aggressive as more marketing opportunities present themselves across podcasts or leagues or other things like that. So the companies are incentivized to do this financially. All you have to do is follow the money and know that it's not good for you as a consumer. Sure, you may hit a bet here and there with a parlay or a same game parlay, but ultimately most people are betting more money than ever before and losing more money than ever before as a result of it. That's it for today though, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you didn't, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast feed on Apple or Spotify, wherever listening to this episode. If you're watching it on YouTube, make sure to subscribe to the channel, like the video, and leave a comment down below. I will answer as many comments as I possibly can over the next few weeks in these episodes. Other than that, I hope everyone has a great day, and we'll talk later this week.